Do you often wonder why God permits so much evil to prosper in the world? Many people do, don't they? Well, with an open Bible, there's actually quite a few things that we can answer to that. Well, first of all, we need to bear in mind that God's common grace in this world restrains evil so that wickedness actually isn't anything like as rampant as it might otherwise be. Also, all things are under God's sovereign control, even wicked things. All fulfill his purposes in the world. There are plenty of examples of that in the Bible. It was the wicked deeds of evil men that took Christ to the cross. It's often only after the event that we can fully recognise God's hand. If we get to see it at all, sometimes we don't. We just have to trust the Lord in these things. In the final chapters of Genesis, which recall the, the life of Joseph, it's only at the very end do we find his declaration that all of his brother's evil deeds, God meant for good. Just because we can't see it, is no reason to conclude that God isn't at work. Something that most people, even Christians, don't often pause to consider is that if God did move against people in their wickedness right now in this world, well, he'd have to take action against you and me as well, wouldn't he? We point at wickedness generally that we've judged to be far worse than our own. And we wonder why God doesn't act against that. We forget that in his sight we are wicked too forgetting that there's no good thing in any of us and that our wickedness is also deserving of God's wrath and judgment. Another point to remember is that God has established a, an era and a period of grace in which we now are, where the gospel is being proclaimed and God's elect are being gathered in and many wicked people in this world are being transformed by the power of the gospel and delivered from that wickedness and out of that kingdom of darkness into the Lord's kingdom of light. Isn't that your testimony? And finally, the Bible teaches very plainly indeed that nothing escapes God's knowledge. He sees all things. He sees all men and women. And none will escape his judgment. Now, we've skipped over chapters 25 to 32, but if you read them through, you'd read there that Ezekiel's attention turns away from Israel and Judah and actually addresses all the surrounding nations. And he speaks of their judgment and he speaks of their destruction, often at the hand of Babylon, and their wickedness receives its due punishment, as all wickedness will under God's mighty hand. Eventually, of course, Babylon too will fall. All of these accounts and stories that we read in the Old Testament, they remind us that there is only one kingdom which is a kingdom of righteousness and a kingdom of holiness and a kingdom of peace. These Old Testament stories remind us that there is only one kingdom, which is an everlasting kingdom. 
And there is only one king whose throne will last forever. Are you in that kingdom? Is he your king? And these Old Testament books should cause us to see just how fleeting and temporary all of these things really are in this world. And what is the final destination of the things of this world? How people strive to set themselves up in the world, to establish themselves, to make themselves something, to be people of worldly substance and influence and power. And in a way, they can be for a time, but they disregard that there is a sovereign God who has numbered all of their days, who laughs at their supposed greatness and who is using even them to do his will. And how many of the world's great ones have experienced the public shame of losing it all before they depart this world as God brings their house built on sand crashing to the ground. And as we keep hearing repeatedly in Ezekiel the day always comes when they are confronted with the truth that God is the Lord. And yet in the midst of all of this, back in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and today, God has his own special people. Those who he calls to himself as we've been remembering in the mornings. And actually much of what God is doing in the world is all for them and it's all about them and it's for their spiritual good and it's in order that he can do in them that which he needs to do and bring glory to himself and six centuries before the birth of Christ in exile in Babylon is a tiny remnant of a once great nation who are God's people in the world and Ezekiel now will turn his thoughts again to them in chapter 33 and he will bring words to stir them and to encourage them whilst back home the judgment that's being promised against Jerusalem is being fulfilled now if you remember last week back in chapter 24 the final words that Ezekiel had spoken to his own people were to confirm that the attack on Jerusalem had begun The judgment that he'd been talking about has now started. And then he was to fall silent until one person who'd managed to escape from Jerusalem would arrive in Babylon with news of Jerusalem's downfall. Then Ezekiel would pick up his preaching ministry once more. Now that's what is said in the last two verses of chapter 24. And in verse 21 of chapter 33, that messenger arrives. And if you compare the date that's mentioned in verse 21 of chapter 33 and go back to the opening verse of chapter 24, you'll see that we're five days short of three years. So since we left chapter 24 were five days short of three years later and now Ezekiel's mouth is opened again as the promised messenger comes from Jerusalem and God speaks through his servant Ezekiel 
And I want to just point out three things from that passage that we read from chapter 33. The first is this. Ezekiel is recommissioned to speak God's words. Now there's some similarity here to what was said in the early chapters and Ezekiel is likened to a watchman once again. You may remember a few weeks ago I had a picture on the screen of the RAF radar station at Filingdales on the Yorkshire Moors near the east coast set on high ground scanning the skies for enemy aircraft or missiles that might come across from Eastern Europe back in the days of the Cold War. Well, in Ezekiel's day, what would you do? Well, you'd build a high wooden tower. You'd send someone up it with a trumpet in their hand. His or her job was to remain alert and vigilant and to look out for any possible sign of trouble or danger. And at the earliest possible moment, they would blow the trumpet to sound the alarm. Now, with that kind of system in place, there are three possible outcomes. Number one, the watchman could fall asleep and the trumpet doesn't get blown. Or they're, they're just lazy and they don't do their job well and the trumpet doesn't get blown. Or they see people approaching and they decide, well, that doesn't seem to be anything to worry about. And the trumpet doesn't get blown. Be careful, Mr. Watchman, verse 6. If you don't blow the trumpet when you should be blowing and warn the people and they die, their blood is on your hands. That's the first thing. Second thing is, what if the watchman does blow the trumpet, but the people ignore it and die? Well, verse 4, they've none to blame but themselves. And they're responsible for their own demise. But, verse 5, there will be those who do hear the warning and they're saved. And this is given as an illustration for Ezekiel and it's explained in verses 7 to 9. And it has application for us today. Ezekiel is like a watchman appointed by God. But instead of being armed with a trumpet, he's armed with the word of God. That's what he is to sound. His job, to speak the words that God has given him. That's it. No more, no less. If you fail to speak and warn the wicked, verse 8, the wicked will die because of their wickedness, but you are answerable for not warning them and telling them. If you do speak, but they ignore you, verse 9, they will die again because of their own wickedness, but you're without guilt. Because you've done what was required of you. You've warned them. You've told them my words. Well, let's just pause there a second. God's church is like the watchman today, especially those who stand and preach. But all of you know the word of God. All of you know the gospel. And all of you are able to relate it to others. You can act as God's watchman, God's watchwoman. In the Bible, we have God's word of warning regarding the coming judgment. But we also have his glorious message of salvation, secured by a wonderful saviour, 
by which men and women may be saved. The trumpet is to be sounded. The message is, be, is to be proclaimed. Run to Christ for salvation. As we saw last Wednesday, as Paul wrote to Timothy, he says the very specific words, this pattern of sound words which are to be made known. Now whenever I stand in front of you and speak, whether it's here on a Sunday, whether it's in the Wednesday meeting, wherever it is, whenever I stand in front of you to speak, you'll only ever find me with one book in my hand. Why? Because God has spoken and given us his message to proclaim. And this is it. And it's to be nothing more and nothing less than this. I'm not to stand and preach about my latest interest or fad or hobby horse. I'm not to bring you my latest opinions and theories. If it isn't in this book, you won't find me talking about it. Unless it happens to be a helpful illustration or comparison or contrast or something of that nature. It is written, God has said, this is the message. And our duty is to declare it as a good watchman, consistently, faithfully, accurately, authoritatively, compassionately, boldly, gently, sternly, softly, firmly, but declare it. Will you be a faithful watchman? Will you pray for one another? that you'll be faithful watchmen? Will you pray for me and others who you know who regularly stand and preach that we'll be faithful watchmen? Will you pray that this local church will be a faithful lampstand holding forth the word of life? God holds us accountable and responsible to be faithful watchmen. And then secondly, we see from these passages that there's a responsibility to listen to God's word. Do you listen? Now in Ezekiel's day, if you ignored the trumpet, meaning that there's an imminent attack, you ignore it, it might cost you your life. But what you can't do is blame the watchman. There are consequences to ignoring the watchman. So we've got this picture, the watchman's blowing the trumpet of an enemy outside of the city, an enemy without. But actually there's a warning here also that there's an enemy within. The enemy within is the wickedness of our own hearts, the wickedness of our own souls, the wickedness of our own lives. And we need to hear the warning about that as well. They're being warned of the peril of dying in their iniquity. Because if you die in your sins, you die in condemnation. And after that comes judgment. And so the, the plea here is that the people would listen in order to be saved. When the word of God is preached, it's the duty and responsibility of everyone to listen to God's words. Why? So that you may live. These chapters we've been reading in Ezekiel, in many ways you could say they're amongst the bleakest in the Bible. 
in terms of how the realities of sin and wickedness are being portrayed here, and yet at the same time, don't we discover that there are these repeated references to God's love and his compassion and his grace again and again and again? In verse 11 of chapter 33, we read words which now are familiar to us. Turn and live. Turn and live. Why should you die? This is God pleading with them through his prophet. I'm standing here, God is saying, pleading with you to return to me. My arms are stretched wide open, ready to receive you, to embrace you when you return to me. Why do you choose to die in your sins? Why do you, if that's the choice you're making right now? This is the plea of the gospel. Are you listening? Will you die in eternal condemnation for your sins? Will you not choose life in Christ? From verse 12 in chapter 33, you might recognize something that's been said earlier in the book. It's back in chapter 18 where God makes it clear that the only kind of righteousness that will do you any good is the righteousness that comes from him when you turn to him in repentance, that you have no righteousness of your own that will do you any good. It doesn't matter how righteous people may consider themselves to be, verse 12. Their transgression and their sin will put them in a place of condemnation. Now, the other side of that coin, if you like, is that most of the wicked, and that's mentioned in verse 12, in verse 14, verse 15, if they turn from their sins in repentance, they'll be forgiven. The condemnation is removed from over their heads, and they shall live. And how hard the sinful heart is that it would refuse such a simple plea to turn and have life. People were as stubborn then as they are today. They were as hard-hearted then as they are today. I often mention the fact that most people like to think that God puts our good deeds and our bad deeds in the balance scales. The good deeds go here and the bad deeds go here and hopefully the good will outweigh the bad. Surely, the good will outweigh the bad, won't they? Well, that's what we love to think will happen. That's how we love to think God will judge us in our sins. It's a, it's a little bit like the House of Commons at the moment, trying to find a majority view over Brexit. Just one vote is enough to tip the scales, as we saw last week. Maybe, and that's how we think, just, I just need that one vote in my favour to tip the scales in my favour. Just that one good deed might be enough to do it. It was close, but as long as it tips it this way, as surely it does, I'm safe. Well, the Bible in Ezekiel 33 has something very 
direct to say about that idea that God just holds us in a balance. And it says it right in the middle of the chapter. I wonder, did you spot it? Can you see it? The verse that makes a nonsense of that way of thinking, that just says, no, throw that balance scale away because it's of no use whatsoever. How do we know from this chapter that God does not weigh the good against the bad to decide whether we're good enough for him and his heaven? It's in verse 13. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered. God says, you don't have anything to even put on the balance scale. It's not even there. I don't remember of your so-called good deeds. I don't remember any of your so-called righteous acts. There's nothing to put on this side. Everything's on this side, the side of sin and iniquity. There's nothing to counterbalance it at all, says verse 13. None shall be remembered. Because of the iniquity that he's committed, he shall die. God just sees the sin and the wickedness. And there's nothing to outweigh it, says the word of God. If you want to insist in this idea of a balanced scale, God says none of your works are remembered that you think are good. They don't count because to him even the best of them are just like filthy rags. And then finally we see in this chapter that repentance is evidenced by hearing and doing. Hearing and doing. What we see in the middle of verses of this chapter, when Ezekiel speaks of those who repent, doing what is lawful and right and walking in the statues of, statutes of life without committing iniquity, he's not suggesting that they are somehow managing to live in a form of righteousness which is earning God's acceptance. That's not what he's saying here. Ezekiel is saying that God's grace does not leave us free to live however we want. It's a point that Paul addresses in Romans 6, isn't it? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, most certainly not. True repentance is evidenced by a change of life that is no longer ruled and dominated by sin. A central theme in John's first epistle. If we say we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's exactly what Ezekiel is saying to the people in this chapter. You're saying the right things, but your lives are just dreadful. It's in verse 31. With their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. It's exactly the same principle that we find in the New Testament. Now, I know lots of Christians seem to think that the Old and New Testaments are like chalk and cheese and that we really shouldn't be bothering with the Old Testament at all. But, you know, there is so much commonality and there is so much harmony between the two Testaments. It's actually quite remarkable 
and wonderful in equal measure. Repentance is evidenced by hearing and doing the word of God. That was the very reason that Jesus told the parable of the two men who built houses, one on the rock and one on the sand. The difference, both of them heard the word, but only one heard it and did it. Are we doers of the words that we're hearing? That was the error, the fatal error that the people were making in Ezekiel's day. And finally, there's a grave danger brought to our attention in the closing verses in this chapter from verse 30 through to verse 32. Everyone's talking about Ezekiel now that he's talking again. You must come and hear him, they're saying. And how they love to hear this man's voice. It's like a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. Oh, it's like being at the Philharmonic, listening to a glorious concert. But it's all about the external things. What a man, they're saying. What a voice. What ability. What an experience it is to hear him. What a performance he gives. But that's all that it's been about. External things. As Ezekiel finishes speaking, the people are buzzing. And they leave with the message that he's told them. And they do nothing. What a great experience. But it hasn't changed them one jot. They leave in exactly the same condition in which they arrived. With their mouth they show much love, but their hearts continue to pursue their own gain. Nothing's changed. They hear your words, but they do not do them. They leave impressed, but unchanged. That a man has been able to impress you is not the point. It isn't the point. What is it that has been brought to me from God's word that I must do? That's the point. If after hearing someone preaching... All you do is talk about how great the preacher is. You've missed the point. Or maybe he did. What have I heard from God that I must do? Those who are repentant are hearers and doers of the word of God. And the first and most important response that we need to make to the word of God is to heed his plea to be reconciled to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you done that? To repent of our sins and to turn and live. Have you done that? Which is to be born again, as we saw this morning. And repentance is evidenced by hearing and doing. And let us make it our aim individually, corporately as a church, to be faithful 
watchmen and women, declaring together the glorious sound, not of a trumpet, but that Jesus saves. We'll close in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that there is such a wonderful message throughout all of the scriptures that whilst in our sins we are lost and condemned, you so love this world that you have secured and established for us a glorious salvation. And help us, O oh Lord, to be faithful with the declaration of this wonderful gospel message. And help each one of us, O oh Lord, to be those who hear your word and do it and to give full evidence that we truly belong to you and that the Spirit of God is alive in our lives and that we are changed people because of all that you're doing in us and through us. Receive our thanks, O Lord, for all that we have in Christ. May our lives reflect him more and more. May our lips speak of him openly and freely. And may we be blessed and praise your name, O Lord, as we see many more coming to know the Savior and being rescued from the darkness of their sins. Be with us in these days, O Lord. Use us as your servants, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.